Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and have we got a good one for you today. You know, I mentioned at the end of the last episode that we've yet to have a football player on the podcast. And so we are going to break that slump in a big way today because my guest is one of the greatest names in the NFL from my childhood. I think back on watching football as a kid, and certainly one of the things that comes to mind for me is the terrific Cowboys-Redskins rivalry. It was always must-see television. And if you are of a certain age, you know the names. Staubach, Dorsett, Pearson, Riggins, Monk, and this man. He's the winning quarterback of Super Bowl seventeen, and he's the 1983 NFL Most Valuable Player. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, Joe Theismann. Joe, how are you? I'm great, Ricky. Great to catch up with you. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. i got to go back to your college career. You know, you had such a successful career at Notre Dame. Your senior year, you guys won the Cotton Bowl. You were second in, in Heisman Trophy voting. And one of the really interesting stories to me is the fact that your last name got a new pronunciation that year. <laughs> Can you take me back and tell me how that transpired? Sure. Uh, actually, it was the beginning of my senior year. We had a really good junior year. and The beginning of my senior year, Roger Valdeseri, our sports information director, called me in the office. He said, Joe, how do you pronounce your last name? I said, it's Thiesman. And I had no idea what he was, you know, where he was going with this thing. I said, it's Thiesman. He said, no, 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 it's Thiesman. I said, no, it's not. It's Thiesman. He said, no, it's Thiesman. I said, give me the phone. So I picked up the phone. I called my dad back home in New Jersey. And, you know, I get my dad on the phone and said, hey, Pop, I got a question for you. He says, fire away, Joey. I said, Dad, tell me, how do you pronounce our last name? And there's this, like, pause on the phone. And then my dad comes on. He says, son, are you okay? He said, you're a senior in college. You don't know how to pronounce your last name. I said, I'm, I'm fine. I'll explain it later. Just tell me, how do you pronounce our last name? He said it was Thiesman. So I turned to Roger. I said, my last name is Thiesman. I know, just got to phone my dad. He said, Joe, I want to explain something to you. There's a trophy out there called the Heisman Trophy. It goes to the best college football player in the country. We think you have a chance to win that trophy, but we're not just going to count on Notre Dame or your athletic ability. We think just by changing the pronunciation of your last name from Thiesman to Theisman to rhyme with Heisman, we can get you that trophy. And um, then I became Joe Theisman. And then there's the, the footnote to that is, is um, my grandmother, who was the matriarch of our family, had come over from Germany. And at that time, Granny, I guess, was in her middle 70s or so, or early 80s. And uh, I said, Graham, they're thinking about changing the pronunciation of our last name from Thiesman to Theismann. She says, well, let me tell you something. She says, actually, the correct pronunciation is Theismann. And Theismann is closer than what we have now. Got the blessing from my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. A lot of people may not realize that you cut your teeth professionally in the Canadian Football League. Of course, as I said, you had a very successful career in Notre Dame. You're drafted in the fourth round by the Miami Dolphins. What led to you ultimately going north to play for the Toronto Argonauts? Well, you know, Ricky, I, I actually, uh, it was a mistake on my part, I would say. 
I've come to learn that professional representation is very important when it comes to any kind of negotiation because in negotiations, once your emotions get involved, it skews uh, the entire picture for you. And what happened is I was drafted by the Toronto Argonauts and I was drafted by the Miami Dolphins. I flew down to Miami. At that time, Joe Thomas, who was the general manager, was actually having heart surgery. So I met with Mr. Joe Robbie, who was the owner of the Miami Dolphins. I walked in his office. I sat down. And I was disheartened being drafted in the fourth round because everybody kept telling me I would go higher. And so, I, but I was, you know, I was drafted. That was what was important. So I walk in his office and we had our the cordial hellos, how are you? So he said to me, well, what do you want? And that was my first mistake is you never tell somebody what you want. You wait and see what they offer and then you understand what you're going on from there. So I said, I want thirty-five, forty-five, and $55,000 and a $35,000 signing bonus, which the numbers today, these guys spill more than that. But anyway, back then it was a, you know, he says, well, you know, that's not what we pay fourth-round draft picks, but in your case, okay, good. So I thought we had a deal. And when I got the paperwork, I broke the bonus down into three separate payments over three years, 12, 12, and 11, for tax purposes. So there was a clause that had me paying back the money if I didn't show up. Now, remember, back in 71, we had just 66, 67, 68, you had the Vietnam War. I didn't know whether I would wind up being called into service. So I didn't know. I was out of college now. And, and I didn't know what was going to happen. So I, I stayed in contact with Leo Cahill, who was the coach of the Argonauts. And, and uh, so I flew to Toronto. I met with them. And they said, look, you either sign this contract. It was 50-50-50-50 across the board, U.S. funds. Which the money wasn't that big a difference. They said, you sign this contract or else it's off the table. I signed it. And John Bassett, who owned television, radio, and newspaper outlets at that time, owned the Argonauts. And I said, please, let me call Coach Shula and tell him what I've done. Well, I arrive back in South Bend. I get a phone call at 6 a.m. in the morning from Eric Parsegi and my coach, who was my consultant, whom I never consulted. And he said, uh, he said um, what in heaven's name have you done? I said, I signed with the Argonauts. He said, I know. I just got off the phone with Coach Shula. He's on his way to South Bend now. And uh, that was not a very pleasant conversation. And I think Don hated me for a number of years. And then in 1982, we beat the Miami Dolphins and Don Shula in the Super Bowl. So I guaranteed another 10 years of him not liking me. <laughs> but um, we have since, uh, you know, I send my best along to him all the time. And I guess it, I don't have uh, very few regrets, Ricky, about life. I, I don't, I never look in the rear view mirror because I can't change that. I can only change what's out in front of me. But uh, I think playing for Coach Shula would have been an incredible experience. You could have picked up a couple of Super Bowl rings while holding a clipboard, too. Actually, the, the three years I was in Canada, 71, 72, and 73, they went to two of them. One of them. 72 was the undefeated team. Matter of fact, he went and got Earl Morrill, who quarterbacked most of the 72 team. He quarterbacked most of those games that year. Bob Greasy came back from, I believe, a broken leg later on in the season uh, and towards the playoffs. But um, it was a little bit similar to what we saw with Jay Schrader and Doug Williams when Doug was the MVP of, uh, of uh, the Super Bowl for the Redskins because, mm-hmm. you know, Dougie played, played just the playoffs in a couple of games there at the end and had, a, you know, the game of a lifetime in the Super Bowl. So, 74, the Redskins acquire your rights from the Dolphins for, I believe, a first-round pick. 
you come you you come down to the NFL from from uh, Canada, and your first couple of years you really didn't see much action, but you were a punt returner in '74. Yep. How did you land in that role? Because I, I realized that things weren't quite as specialized 40 years ago as they are now in the NFL, but still, I was a little surprised to see that you were returning punts your rookie year in the NFL. Well, interestingly enough, uh, my sophomore year at the University of Notre Dame, because back when I was in college, freshmen weren't eligible. So my sophomore year, I returned punts with a guy by the name of Bob Graggio for the first seven games of my sophomore year. And then Terry Hanratty got hurt in practice on a Friday. And uh, Era had Coley O'Brien, who had quarterbacked the Notre Dame football team in the national championship game in 19... 19- Sixty-six, uh, And he had another guy by the name of Bob Belden, who was uh, a quarterback, both seniors, and Terry Hanright. There were three seniors and me as a sophomore. And so Eric turned to me and put me in. And so obviously becoming the starting quarterback, I retired as a punt returner. Then I went to the Canadian Football League, and I used to catch punts up there. If you kick the ball in the end zone with a punt and it's not returned out, it's a single point for the team that kicked it in. So at the end of a half or the end of a game to protect one point, I used to catch the ball and kick it back out. Now, in the Canadian League, there was no downfield blocking, but they gave you what's called the five-yard halo rule where they the players couldn't come inside the five-yard five, year, five yard area. So I'd have to catch it and punt it back quickly. <clears throat> and then when I got to the Redskins, it was just a, sort of a continuation. I'd caught punts for a long time. Uh, when my dad and I used to play catch, he'd throw balls up in the air, and I'd learn how to, you know, catch fly balls. And uh, then, you know, it just, uh, I, the first 74, 75, I returned punt. 76, 77, I sat and watched. And uh, 78, Jack Pardee took over as coach and gave me a chance to play. What did that mean to you? Because 1970, your second place in the Heisman voting, it's not until 1978 that you take over the full-time role, uh, you know, getting the reins of an NFL team. Three years in Canada, basically a four-year apprenticeship with the Redskins. When did you find out that the job was yours, and what did that mean to you going into the season, knowing that it was your team? Well, you know, it was frustrating. Uh, Billy Kilmer and Sonny Jurgensen were the quarterbacks here, and, you know, in hindsight, I learned an awful lot from those guys, not even realizing I was learning something from them as I look back. Um, at that time, all I wanted to do was play. And all they wanted to do was play. So there wasn't a very good relationship with uh, Sonny and Billy. And I only played one year with Sonny. And then Billy and I really didn't care for one another, to be honest. Um, he had what I wanted, and he wanted to keep what I wanted. And so, you know, it was it was a, a, not a good situation. And plus, the Redskins were the most senior team in football. In 1974, when I joined the Redskins, there was a strike, and I crossed the line, so that didn't endear me to anybody. And um, as long as George Allen was going to be the coach of the Washington Redskins, the chance of me playing was probably very slim because George believed in veterans and not making mistakes. He believed in defense, running the football, and not making mistakes. And so that was his philosophy. And then when Jack took over, Joe Walton became the offensive coordinator, and Joe really is the man that shaped my game. Um, I owe so much to Coach Walton for what he did for me and Coach Marchabroda, who was my first uh, coach, Teddy Marchabroda. And and just 
you know, it was frustrating. It was, it was, and so that's why I returned punts in the early years because I wanted, I, I wanted to do something. Heck, I ran wide receiver on the scout team. I was on the punt return team. I would, you know, try and block gunners when Larry Jones took over to return the punts uh, the second year. And then in 78, when Jack took over, he gave me the chance to be the quarterback. And then, um, so I played most of the game in 70. I'll never forget. We were six and two in 1978. And I was on the cover of, you know, Sporting Magazine and everything, you know, New Kid in Town, whatever. Then we went six and two, and then I wasn't on the back page of anything. So it's funny how things flip around in a heartbeat in our business. But it was frustrating. But then I got a chance to play. And, you know, the biggest question you have, because I was just a skinny little kid. Heck, Ricky, I never played heavier than 185 pounds for 15 years of professional football. Wow. I wouldn't even be. I would. I wouldn't even be an afterthought today. I would never get invited to a combine. You know, people would just never look at you. That's why I'm so thankful I played when I did, uh, because you were judged in a different way at that time. And for me, it was. It was just a, a dream come true to be able to be a quarterback in the National Football League. I, I'd chosen football over baseball because I got drafted by the Minnesota Twins to play as well. And baseball was kind of your first love, right? Yep, it was. Yeah, I love that. I still to this day, I, I sit in my office sometimes, or in, in my office at uh, away from my home, and also the one in my own. And I'll just put a baseball game on, and I'll just you know I'll just I'll just watch. You know, I think there's some you know some incredible. What, what's happening in baseball is interesting. Now guys are griping about the ball being juiced again because there's so many home runs. You know, one thing it's the bat, next thing it's the ball, next thing it's the player. We've been through this before. It's old. Yeah, you know? I mean, we've seen this dance happen before. So why can't we just accept that these guys are really incredible athletes? I mean, you, you, Aaron Judge, for example, with the Yankees, what, 6'8", 280 pounds? Where do you expect him to hit the ball? <laughs> do you expect him to bunt? I mean, really? Is he just going to get up there and bunt? I mean, he's, he's mammoth. It's unbelievable. It's true. These athletes are... <laughs> they're not cut from the same cloth as guys no, like Hank Aaron and Willie Mays different. who were just, you know, Willie Mays was probably, he was probably about like you. He probably weighed a buck 80 or something like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, you just, we were, it was, you were a different athlete. That's why Drew Brees is sort of my hero. You know, Drew keeps trucking along at about six feet, six one, and uh, just has sensational years and has done a fabulous job down there in New Orleans uh, leading them. And it'll be interesting now to see what happens with Adrian Peterson in his backfield for him. Sean Payton's going to have to change a lot of things when it comes to play calling because Sean loves to put the ball in the air. And how, how much does Adrian have left? Well, you know, I, I think this is... If he's physically healthy, I think he's going to be a great asset to him. But again, you know, he's coming off the, the knee and, and um, I think he's going to be fine. I really do. I, we saw Ernest Biner have two knee surgeries and come back, uh, a name that people would remember both played for the Redskins and other places and now was a coach for quite a while in the NFL. But uh, a lot of guys have bounced back. Usually it's two years. And I think Adrian is, he's ready to, he's ready to deliver um, on what he wants to be and, you know, sort of put a stamp on his great career. This is a good time for me to ask you this because I want to get to the the Super Bowl winning season, but just the physical toll. You know, you're talking about you maxed out at a buck eighty five during your career, and you played. Let's face it, during an era where compared to today, it was open season on the quarterback. 
Yeah, it was. You're right. And you are, as, as far as I can remember, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're the last quarterback that I remember wearing a one-bar face mask. Right. Which always kind of blew my mind, uh, even at the time. How did the one bar become your preference, and you stayed with that through your entire career? Well, I actually wore it in Canada um, my latter years up there. I played three the last two years. I, I think last year, last two years, I wore a single bar up there. But there's actually two reasons. Um, one of them was simply because when I looked down to hand off, it wasn't throwing the ball because you always look over the bars. To hand off, the other bar just bothered me. So it was a nuisance. So that's the reason I didn't do that. But then um, the second reason was both Billy Kilmer and Sonny Jurgensen wore single bars. And I figured, what would I look like having a double bar with these two guys who were you know, icons in the city of Washington wearing single bars? So a little bit of it was ego and um, pride. The other was basically just trying to do my job and be efficient at it. Joe, take me through what a typical week would be like for you in terms of recovery after a game. What did you have to do by the time you're getting halfway into the season, two-thirds into the season, just to get your body ready? See, I was a different animal, um, Ricky. It's really funny. <clears throat> guys get massages today, and you know these guys, these kids don't practice today. I mean, they're off January, February, March, and April. They can't even go to the facilities to work with their coaches. That's how absurd this collective bargaining agreement that these guys work under now is. I think the game is hurt by the fact that the athlete can't spend time with the coach at their profession four months of the year. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. But for me, you know, I play a game on Sunday. Monday, I'd be out at the facility running around, throwing the ball around, just lifting weights, having a good time. Um, I loved it. I mean, it, it didn't, I didn't, it, there wasn't the recovery period for me was go to bed Sunday night after you're all beat up because you see the day, the first day I went to training camp was the last day I knew I was going to feel good. I, I was always going to have something that hurt me. Whether, it didn't matter whether it was arm, leg, ribs. I mean, I've had seven broken noses. My teeth have been knocked out, multiple concussions, two broken right hands. Um, a dislocated elbow, broken collarbones, broken ribs, broken leg twice, torn up knees, you know, hip pointers, which which really is just the muscle being torn away from the hip. Um, I've had all these different things. I'm officially you never know, going to complain again about <laughs> <laughs> about any physical well, you know, problem. I, I, I prided myself on being able to play the game. I played 163 consecutive football games. The 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 day they carried me off the field was the last game I played in. And it's really interesting. The beginning of the 85 season, and that was the year I got hurt, a reporter asked me in training camp, they said, how long do you keep on playing? Because I'm 35. How long would you like to keep playing? I said, shoot, I'll play until they carry me off the field. Well, I learned a great lesson then is <laughs> never say something and bring it into this universe because it could possibly happen. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things that I hesitate to even ask you about because it's so played out and everybody wants to hear about it. And so I'll just ask you this. What was worse, the injury itself or being asked by schmucks like me to uh, <laughs> give your reflections on it for 30-plus years since then? Well, Ricky, to be honest with you, it, was a, it wasn't a tragedy. It was a blessing. See, I had enjoyed such tremendous success 
in professional football, being an MVP of the league and a Super Bowl champion. And, you know, I really thought that the world revolved around me. Um, I had become very self-centered and very egotistical. Um, you know, I felt like I was better than other people. And um, the, that particular night, I believe God intervenes in our lives in different ways. And for me, it was uh, divine intervention because I had um, I'd reached a point in my career where I was extremely successful as a football player, but I continued to deteriorate as a person. And I think the good Lord decided that I had served my time um, and I had served my purpose as an athlete. And now it was time to reevaluate my life and try and help people understand what they can do to achieve the things that they want in their life and then do it in the right kind of way. And so, you know, it was the gift was, first of all, the opportunity to play with some great players, with great coaches, and, and receive some awards. Um, but the greater gift is what I'm trying to give back now in the motivational speeches that I do, is that, you know, it's not all about you. It's not all about who you are. It's about what you can do for people. Instead of walking around with your hand out, walk around reaching out to bring people into your world. And so for me, that particular night really was a, a, the changing point in my life. It took me a while to realize it didn't happen like the next day, all of a sudden, like, wow, you know, the, you know, this is the world I was in and this is the world I'm going. It's a hard thing to, to deal with. The thing that you love and you do so well, uh, you thought you did it well and you committed your life to it, all of a sudden it's gone. I mean, you know, I, I tell people all the time, snap your fingers. That's how quickly your life can change. Now, how do you deal with the change that's occurring in your life? That's really what I talk about when it comes to the presentations, is dealing with change. And uh, mine was instantaneous, and it took a while to really learn about who I was and, and what my purpose was going to be going forward in life. How long did it take before you realized that this was a career-ending injury? Because I know that with the mentality that, that you had, being a tough guy, being a competitor— Initially, your focus was, I'm, I'm going to heal and I'm going to come back. I did. I thought cause I, because I'd broken my leg in Canada in 72, but I only broke one bone. And this one was quite more severe because it was an open compound fracture. But they never rotted it. That's the other thing. I don't have a rod in my leg, which now today it's almost standard procedure for them to rot them. Right. And, uh, and so uh, I, I tried to come back. I worked out. Uh, in April of 86, and uh, I was supposed scheduled for a, an hour workout because I had insurance. I didn't, you know, insured myself. So I worked out for the insurance company and our team, and it was supposedly an hour workout. 15 minutes into it, everybody walked off the field. I, I walked in the locker room. I said, I'm not done. And Bubba Tyre, our trainer, looked at me and he said, oh, yes, you are. And so, um, but then the first two contracts I signed with the uh, television networks, one at CBS and the one in 88 with ESPN, um, I had clauses that said if somebody wanted me to play football, I could get out and go play. As a matter of fact, you know, when the Ravens played the uh, Giants in, in the Super Bowl in 2000, Brian Billick, who was the coach of the Ravens, was a very close friend. And I was covering games, and so... Um, in training camp, I said I thought the Baltimore Ravens would win the championship. And oddly enough, they were there. So Brian actually let me throw defensive drills the Wednesday of the week of the Super Bowl for the Baltimore Ravens. I actually went out on the field and threw defensive drills, and I threw around pretty well. 
But I was 50 years old at that time. And, uh, you know, it's funny. Boomer Esiason, Phil Sims, Steve Young, all my old friends, you know, say at that time when they were still playing, they'd go, Joe, just give it up, Joe. Just give it up. It's not there anymore. <laughs> I said, I can't. I can't. I can't give it up. But uh, I wanted to come back and play, but it never worked out for me. Let me go back here to the Super Bowl year, because I have a policy. If you have quarterbacked the team to a Super Bowl victory, I have to talk about it on the podcast. So <laughs> I don't want to break that policy today. In 81, Joe Gibbs takes over as the head coach of the Redskins. And by 82, which of course was a was a strike year, a bit of an unusual season. You play two weeks, and then essentially you've got a strike that knocks out about eight weeks of the season or thereabouts. Yep. What was it like coming back? I believe the season resumed on November the 21st. Everybody had two games under their belt that they had played back in September. What was the football team's mentality coming back from that layoff, essentially having this uh, sprint to, to the finish line that would be uncharacteristic of a typical NFL season? Well, I don't know. You know, I'm not sure what other people did, but what I tried to do is I kept our last game plan. And I believe we were off six weeks. And for the first four weeks, we had, you know, I'd set up practices at some high school. And um, we probably had 35 guys attend the first three weeks. Then it was down to about 25 the fourth week, and then it petered out a little bit uh, as time went on the last couple of weeks. But we stayed together. We practiced. We, we built a camaraderie during that period of time. Like I said, you get 35 guys out for a voluntary practice three days a week. I mean, that, that's, that's monumental. And I, I think that probably built the foundation of what we became as a football team. You know, Ricky, I can walk through locker rooms today when I was in broadcasting also. I can walk through a locker room, and I can tell you whether that team has a chance to win or not just simply by the interaction of the players. Do they like one another? If these guys like one another, they'll play for one another. If you see one group hanging out, another group hanging out, and people not really saying anything, all of a sudden I'm thinking, you know, when, when things are really going to get tough, this is not a good sign for this ball club. It's observing people. I love I loved to watch people. I travel about 250 days a year. I sit in airports, and I absolutely get the biggest kick out of watching people. I know people look at me. I mean, people recognize me, and I say hello and all that, but I love to observe people. Interaction between parents and children. Interaction between, you know, people walking, two guys walking, talking, you know, get behind them and listen to them talk about different things or two gals heading down or, you know, a husband and wife and I mean, or partners or whoever. I just, I love, I love looking at people. I love observing people. How much do you feel like you put those skills into play as, as a leader? Because as the quarterback, you know, some guys relish that some guys maybe don't relish that part of the job. But as a, as a quarterback, like it or not, you're a leader. What does it mean to you, that aspect of the job, aside from going out and performing on the field, but being that guy that other guys may be looking to for direction? Well, they're always looking towards that position. I mean, if you're going to play quarterback with any degree of success, you know, leadership has to be a part of it because there comes different points in your career and in different games where they're looking for you to make the play. You know, you're, you, you are in the position 
to have the responsibility to be able to deliver in the moments when they're important. You know, I mean, anybody can lead a ship that's doing well. It's when things get tough, you know, can people look to you and say, okay, take us someplace. Let's get us out of this mess. And uh, you can't do it by words. You hear hear people verbalize all the time about what they're going to do. And, you know, words are very, very shallow. It's your actions that speak volumes when it comes to being able to judge whether someone has the ability to lead or not. Um, you know, I'll give you two very contrasting types of, of people looking at. Red Favre was a, is a great leader, was a great leader on the football field. Jump around, you know, play like a 12-year-old kid. Joe Montana, another great Super Bowl champion, four-time. Um, very quiet, um, but, but, you know, almost steel-like, you know, ice water flowing through his veins and, and his steely look when it came to the focus and concentration that he had. Two very different types of individuals that approach the game, but the same type of leadership skills. When it came time for them to make a play, they did. And that's what people look at. And that's what people care about. Because you're really only 146th of a football team. You can't win without a quarterback, and yet the quarterback's the single most dependent guy on the field when you stop and think about it. Joe, take me back. Super Bowl seventeen. You guys enter the fourth quarter trailing Miami 17-13. What is it like being on the largest stage in sports? Close game, trailing, everything's on the line. What's it like to perform under that kind of microscope? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Joe Gibbs had told us in the meeting the night before that if we can get into the fourth quarter, if we can be within a touchdown, um, whether we're up one or down one, we can control the game because we were bigger than they were. And we never really changed our approach. We never really got away from running the football. And we basically wore them down, I think. And then the ability to be able to do some of the things we did in the passing game helped us tremendously. But it's... um it's it's what every it's what every athlete lives for the opportunity to deliver under pressure. I think that's what separates people. Is how well do you handle pressure? Is the stage too big for you? Uh, do you wilt when the lights get really bright? Um, I used to love those moments. I felt much more relaxed in that kind of a moment than I did if we would play the zero and twelve Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Really I'd be nervous as heck. Yeah, let, me, let me play the Dallas Cowboys every Sunday, but when you play a team that's, that's not a good team, because they're so undisciplined to a degree. And, you know, when you play a great football team, you know what you're going to get. You know, they got there in a particular way. They're not going to change a lot of what they do. I mean, think of your own lives and those people that are listening. If you're doing something well, you're going to keep on doing it. If you're, doing, if you're having success, you're not all of a sudden going to say, well, let me try something else. Or, let me try this. Let me try that. You know, you stay with what you know. When it comes to teams that aren't successful, you just, you're never quite sure what you're going to get. You get that, the craziest looks, you get these crazy moments, you say to yourself, that doesn't make sense. But sometimes those moments work out for the other people. But I always measured myself against other people. Like, for example, I call it validation. When I was, when I was in high school, our validation came on Thanksgiving Day when we played New Brunswick High School in New Brunswick, New Jersey. They were a, a great rival of ours, and we played them on Thanksgiving Day at Rutgers Stadium. And then when I went to the University of Notre Dame, the validation came 
if I could play well against the University of Southern California because they put so many guys into professional football, then I belonged being a college quarterback. And then the validation came in professional football when we played the Dallas Cowboys because they were perennially great. And if I could play well against them, then I deserved to be a professional quarterback. And, you know, you're always trying to validate your position in life. And for me, it was through those particular elements in different phases that, you you know, I validated my, my ability to play the game. You win the Super Bowl, 82 season. You come back, 83 season. You guys go 14-2. and two. You're the most valuable player in the league. You ultimately lose the Super Bowl uh, that year. But uh, winning a Super Bowl and winning an MVP in successive years, you had to be on top of the world at that point. Yeah, it was. You're right. I mean, it was, you know, we enjoyed tremendous success. And in 84, we went back to the playoffs again. We won the division, went back to the playoffs, and, you know, played the Bears. And that was sort of the beginning of the Bear dominance, 84, 85. Um, when they became something special defensively in particular. Um, but that's, you know, that's, you know, that's where I started to think that I was pretty darn good because I'd achieved that much success. You know, I had an opportunity to be part, to quarterback a football team that would have won back-to-back Super Bowls. There had only been two, I think, prior to that. And, and that moment was special, but I just, I didn't capitalize on it. I didn't deliver when I had the opportunity to. I didn't prepare properly. I think about that game quite frequently, and I think about the preparation that I went through to get ready for it. You know, I'd already been a champion. So, and I tell people all the time, don't live on yesterday's performances. Every day, you've got to prove yourself, uh, whether it's your job, whether it's as a parent, whether it's a partner, whether it's as a friend. Every day, you have an opportunity to prove yourself. Don't think because you did it yesterday that automatically it's going to be the same thing today. Did the losses hurt more than the wins felt good? Oh, yeah. The losses are deep. I, it's interesting. It's, it's an interesting question, Ricky, because I remember after we won the world championship in 82, we were in Hawaii at the Pro Bowl, and I was sitting under a palm tree Thursday afternoon with Bobby Baumauer, who was a nose tackle for the Miami Dolphins. And we were sitting there just talking, and I said, Bob, I, you know, I... I I apologize to you, but I just got to ask this question. What's it like to lose the Super Bowl? And he said, Joe, it's the worst feeling in the world. He said, you wish to God you'd never gotten there. It's just so devastating. And I said to him, I said, geez, I hope I never have that feeling. Wouldn't you know it? Within a year later, uh, he was absolutely right. It's so hard to describe the euphoria that you feel when you win one. And you work so hard to get there. You're one of two teams that have an opportunity right in front of you. It's right there in front of you to become a part of the history of the NFL, and it's gone. And, you know, if you think of guys like Danny Marino, for example, who went to one and lost it, and then, you know, Jim Kelly who went to four and lost it. What kind of scar tissue do those guys, particularly Matt Ryan, what kind of scar tissue do those guys have after what wasn't just a Super Bowl loss but was really just a stomach punch that the Atlanta Falcons had? Oh, it was a beatdown. I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, it's, it leaves a horrible taste in your mouth. They're going to be hungry as heck this year because it's a darn good football team. They know how good they are. And, you know, from that standpoint, there is nothing Matt Ryan could have done. The New England Patriots ran twice as many plays in a Super Bowl as the Atlanta Falcons. I think they ran 96, counting every play. The, Dol- uh, the Falcons ran 46. And it's like, 
if you're not on the field offensively, you're not going to score. Bottom line. What about the Monday morning quarterbacks like me who say, you know, after Julio Jones made that terrific catch on the sideline, what about the folks that say you're you're up at this point, run the ball three times, kick a 30-yard field goal, and you put the game on ice? That goes on the coordinator. You know, I mean, you you know, you you have to live with it as a player, but you also have coaches making decisions. Go back two years ago to the New England Patriots beating Seattle. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got second and one, and you got Marshawn Lynch, and you throw the football. You know, but coaches prepare for those times. You know, Malcolm Butler made a great play. You get uh, Hightower makes a great sack uh, to really turn that way. It was it was twenty eight twelve, and all of a sudden Atlanta turns it over on the twenty five yard line. And then Julio makes that sensational catch, and you put the ball in the air again. You basically play into New England's hands. But you can't take away what New England did. They were down 16 points. They had to score two touchdowns in five minutes, and they had to convert two two two-point conversions. I mean, it's you know, if they don't make one of those conversions, it's over. It's almost like it's almost like Ricky. There's a script out there, and it was it's the history of Tom Brady the greatest quarterback that ever played the game of football. I agree with you on that. Can we put that debate to bed? Shouldn't be a debate anymore. He has to be. Seven Super Bowl appearances, five rings. I don't know how you can, with all respect to Montana and Peyton Manning and Favre and all these guys, I think it's scoreboard at this point. I agree. Where do you see the NFL 10, 20 years from now? Because it seems like over the course of the past few years, we keep learning more and more about the long-term effects of uh, head injuries, brain injuries. Where do you think the NFL goes from here in terms of what is the National Football League going to look like in 2037? It is a great question, and I ask, you know, not even 2037, what's it going to look like in, in 2025? Mm-hmm. Um, what's it going to look like five years from now in 2022? I, I, the league is changing in such a way. Will there be contact football? Will there be a flag football game? I mean, you're, you're, you're looking at $125 million quarterbacks. You've got guys that work less than eight months a year. I mean, you know, like I said, January, February, March, and April, they can't be with the coaches. They have limited OTAs where players don't have to show up. A lot of them don't. Um, you have mini camps where they're mandatory three days, and then they're gone for six weeks until the beginning of training camp, of which it's, it's 17 days. And you wear shoulder pads. You don't wear shoulder pads at all. You wear baseball hats in the morning. You have a hour walkthrough, and then you practice an hour and 45 minutes. And, and you know, it's, they've cut back on guys getting contact, which I think contributes to injuries more than, than causes them. But, you know, how much contact will there be in the game? It's a violent contact game, Ricky. And that's the question. Will, it, will the integrity of the game go away because of safety? And I believe safety is a factor. But it's like anything else. If two guys are running into one another, something may happen. Kids on a skateboard, they may fall off. Right. I don't want to be like the old get-off-my-lawn guy because I'm too young for that. But when I hear, and I don't know how seriously this has really been considered, but you hear things like eliminating kickoffs. And I think 
you're you're fundamentally changing the game in a way that I think would be a huge turnoff for many of us. Well, you fundamentally have already changed the game by moving the uh, the kickoff up five yards. Mm-hmm. The balls, you know, how, how many how many kickoffs are returned actually now? Right, not it, nearly see, but, as many. But here's what happens. But this is but this is interesting. This is how smart the coaches are. They now instruct their players, and the kickers are really good. So they instruct them not to kick the ball through the end zone. They want you to kick it high down around the three-yard line because they feel like with special teams as good as they are and the athletes as good as they are, they'll pin you inside the 20-yard line. So this whole concept of, of let's, move the, let's move the kickoff up five yards so guys can kick it out and we'll reduce the kickoffs backfired. Didn't work. Coaches got smart. They actually pinned people back inside the 20 more because they didn't kick it out of the end zone. You just kick it high and let them go cover. So, I mean, you know, to me, sometimes uh, in looking at the rules, common sense gets sort of shoved to the side and you get a group of people in a room and they start to talk about things and they come up with something that is so difficult to be able to uh, execute. I feel bad for officials. You know, what's pass interference? What's defensive holding? What's offensive holding? You know, it's a very, you know, when players run into one another, if you're a running back and you lower your head and you run into a defensive back, that's a penalty. Um, you can, you know, you can do certain things to certain players, but you can't do certain things to other players. If you have the end of the end zone is treated differently than the goal line or the sidelines, it's confusing. I would love to see. I would love to see the um, competition committee sit down and really try and simplify. What's a catch, Ricky? What's a catch? You know, to me, yeah. let me tell you. This is this is the this is the way the rules should read. Okay, if you ca- if you possess, I love these terms. If you possess the football and have control of the football, and two feet are either on the ground or inbounds, it is a catch. If you happen to lose it when you go out of bounds, it's incomplete. If the ball touches the ground in the process of catching the ball, it's incomplete. How have we made something that probably a 12-year-old could make a sound decision just by watching so complicated? Well, you, you know, it's, you, get, you get a lot of people in a room. You get a lot of different opinions. Um, I, just, I would like to see that particular rule simplified. Make it real, real simple, and, and it's easy to do. It's easy to do. You don't have to. I don't have to go to. In, I don't have to go to replay all the time. If a guy has, if a guy catches the ball, and he has possession of it, and his two feet are on the ground. It's catch. Have we already gone too far in protecting quarterbacks? You know, I don't know if you can protect. I don't know if you can go too far protecting anybody. To be honest with you, um, I, I think protection is important. Um, I know the game was different when I played, and, and I'm you know happy for the guys today. I think if a, if a defender, if a quarterback is scrambling, and a defender pushes a quarterback to the ground, that's not roughing. You know that that's that's and you know there needs to be some consistency from the officials. Remember, there's human error involved. There, you know, one of the things I, I you know one of the coaches I used to meet with all the time, they charted what officials called. Some officials let you get away with a little more hand-checking when it comes to defensive backs and wide receivers. Uh, some guys let you, you know, do a little bit more with your hands if you're an offensive lineman. 
you know, if, if you accidentally come in and try and swipe the ball and, and contact a quarterback's head, that's not roughing. That's why I've always believed there should be two degrees of penalties. There should be a roughing penalty and a contact penalty. The contact penalty is five yards, not an automatic first down. The roughing is 15 and a first down. I'll co-sign with you on that idea. And the real only reason I say it, Ricky, is they have that in policy for, for kickers. Mm-hmm. That's the policy. For, you have running into the kicker and roughing the kicker. But what the heck, kickers aren't that important to the NFL. Only 33% of the games are decided by field goals. Well, how often do you see a situation where you think that your team has just forced a punt and there comes the flag and, you know, it's kind of this almost kind of incidental contact, but yet it's roughing the passer 15 yards and a fresh set of downs? Well, you know, that's the whole thing is, you know, what's, you know, there, there's a set of rules that says there's criteria that have to be met for roughing the, the, the uh, roughing the, the kicker. Um, you know, I, I just, that's one of those things that I think is probably easier to deal with than anything. If you're run into or pushed into by someone that's different than just flat out taking a guy's leg out or his, his plant leg out, you know, I, those are pretty easily observed. And remember, you're, you're dealing with, you know, not, not going to get them right all the time. Like I said, I, I feel for officials. When I was in the booth, I used to criticize them. And then I really have come to appreciate how tough a job they have. You know, being an NFL official, the only tougher job is being an NBA official. Because in in every play in basketball in the NBA, somebody's fouling somebody. I mean, it was it was interesting to watch LeBron James during the playoffs just have a guy guarding him, just push him out of the way. Just literally push him out of the way and then take a jump shot. Or watch these guys wrestle under the basket with one another, arms locked. Just body slamming one another. You know, I, I just felt like that's something the NBA is going to have to get their arms around. I love every sport. I love baseball. I love football. I love basketball. I'm even watching soccer now and hockey. And, you know, everything else. I just, you know, I look at the game and I, I think, you know, probably everybody talks about the, you know, Australian rules football and rugby and all these different games. I'll tell you something. Watching the NBA playoffs, which was phenomenal. The physicalness of those games, to me, was absolutely incredible. Those guys beat the living bejesus out of one another. And the problem is, is if you try and blow the whistle, games will be so long and people people won't like it. Right. You know, they want to see these things. So you do what you do, fans, and, and we just sit here and we analyze it. You know, having been around the game of football as a broadcaster for 23 and a player for 15, 38 years, you you see things, and there's things you'd like to see inside the game, but you're not the one making the decision, so you just live with it. I've saved my two toughest questions for the very end. The first question is, is John Riggins really as crazy as he seems? John, John is not crazy. John is an interesting personality. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a good Riggins story. Man, I, I, you know, there's it's so hard. John was you know, John just loved life. Um, John had his own way of doing things. Obviously, he had all the different hairdos with the Jets and with us. And there wasn't a harder worker. Um, John used to John used to just stay after practice and work his rear end off. He used to meet with the offensive line. He never was in our passing meetings. 
John never sat in our installation meetings for pass for the pass game. He always sat with the offensive line in the running games with Joe Bugle and, and the guys, the Hawks. Uh, but you know, Johnny was just fun to be around. Um, you know, going when I played for the Redskins at that period of time in the '80s, I felt more like the ringmaster of a circus than I did the quarterback <laughs> of a football team. But, you know, we had the Smurfs, our wide receivers. We had the Hogs. We had John. Our, you know, our, our defensive backs uh, had a moniker. Um, you know, it was just it was just a really fun group of guys. Like I said earlier, if, if you walk through our locker room, you can see a bunch of guys having a good time. And my last question, what are your memories of being in Cannonball Run 2? Well, I had a chance to work with Susan Anton and Catherine Bach. Um, that was a very very pleasant experience let's put it that way <laughs> and uh Bert Reynolds Bert had been Bert has been a friend for many many years when I first uh when I first met him um uh, at the uh, an award ceremony in Las Vegas and he asked me to be in in uh Cannonball so uh it was it was just unbelievable it's an ensemble of people uh, of Academy Award winners that you know you won't see a collection like that anywhere I mean Sammy Davis Jr. Dean Martin Charles Nelson Riley, Frank Sinatra, um, Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise, um, Jackie Chan, uh, the orangutan from you know various movies, uh, Tony Danza, uh, Shirley MacLaine, uh, Mary Lou Henner, you know Catherine, um, Susan, uh, just I mean it was just it was fun. I, I remember sitting around one day. We were out in Tucson. We filmed. We were filming in Tucson and. And Sammy had brought out these six shooters, and, and he was twirling them, you know, like a gunfighter. <laughs> and, and it's just like unbelievable. It's like I just I watched just watched Django the other day, uh, and you know Jamie Fox is someone I've I've come to know pretty well, and just an incredible actor. But I watched him, you know, handle a gun, you know, pretty like good. Denzel Washington. Yeah, like Denzel Washington in The Magnificent Seven. You watch these guys uh, do that, and I have a ranch in Northern Virginia here. And, um, you know, I have a six shooter and a holster and I tried to do that too. And I'm just, I'm just not good. <laughs> like they are. did a movie last year called love on the sidelines for Hallmark. And so I'm still involved a little bit in the, in the world of acting. And it's just fun. He's the 1983 NFL MVP. The name is Theisman as in Heisman. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You're welcome, Ricky. Great catching up with you. My thanks to Joe Theismann, still one of the most authoritative voices in the NFL, a terrific player, a terrific guy. Big thanks to Joe for coming on the show. My guest next week is a name that you probably don't know, but you should, because Adam Ballinger is doing some of the absolute coolest sports art that you're ever going to see. And we're actually going to give away an Adam Ballinger original next week right here on the show. But Adam's more than an artist. He was a member of Tom Izzo's 2000 NCAA champion Michigan State Spartans team. He was recruited out of high school by Bobby Knight. He's played against Magic Johnson. He's played around the world in Israel, New Zealand, and for many years in Australia where he makes his home. And I'm going to have to ask him, what is a Barbie and are they still putting shrimp on it over there? And is every other guy in Australia named Crocodile? These are questions that I have. So join me next week when my guest will be Adam Ballinger. We're going to be giving away art 
one of you is going to be a winner, but we're all winners, really, when you remember to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast. <laughs>